worshiping. And this morning, having heard our passage of Scripture already, you know the scene. You can sense the paradox already a little bit. Jesus is in the middle of this great crowd moving towards Jerusalem, a crowd that is chanting and worshiping Him. Time of visible joy and celebration. Yet as Jesus rises above that final hill, seeing Jerusalem for the first time on His final trip there, something in His demeanor changed. I've got to believe that this visible change in demeanor was seen by the crowds around him. I've got to believe that this visible change in demeanor was seen by the crowds around him. I think they witnessed his tears. Now this isn't necessarily the normal mental picture we get when we read this passage, is it? We picture something more like this. Jesus sitting by himself on a hill. That gentle tear rolling down his face as he thinks about this city. I'm not so sure that's how it happened, because as part of the triumphal entry, I think Jesus was surrounded by people. And I think as they saw him begin to cry, their eyes would have looked more closely at him. And their ears would have honed in a little bit better to what he was about to say. Luke 19, 41 through 44. We're going to spend most of our time here, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Verse 41 says, But as Jesus came closer to Jerusalem, and He saw the city ahead, He began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity for salvation. What did the people around Jesus that day when He said that? What words did Jesus' tears speak so loudly? Now, unless the people were complete morons, I think they had to pick up on how much this grieved Jesus. How much this moment affected them. Two times in our Scriptures it says Jesus wept. Once at the tomb of Lazarus and once now. And this was one of those times, and the the, the Greek word used here for weep, it's a strong word, referring to full sobbing. I mean, can you see it? This is not that single tear kind of romantically falling down his cheek. This is a full body crying. This is Jesus wailing. you got to understand, the people would have heard this. And I think at least a few of them would have seen it and thought to themselves, Wait now. Prophet Jeremiah was known for weeping. Is there a connection here? Jeremiah 13, 17, Jeremiah says, And if you still refuse to listen to me, I will weep alone because of your pride. My eyes will overflow with tears because the Lord's flock will be led away into exile. That sounded all like what Jesus was saying. 
In chapter 9, verse 1, Jeremiah is weeping for sinful Judah. He says, if only my head were a pool of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night for all my people who have been slaughtered. A few chapters later, he says again, night and day, my eyes overflow with tears. I cannot stop weeping. I'm guessing that a few of the people in the crowd that day around Jesus saw his whole body shaking. Weeping as he looked at Jerusalem and thought to themselves, we've heard this before. I think those listening would have also thought back to other Old Testament prophets. More than just Jeremiah. See, Jesus in verse 43 says, indeed, the days will come. The days will come upon you when your enemies will come. The days will come as a phrase used 17 times in the Old Testament by the prophets. Every time it is used right before a significant event, and almost every one of those times it's used right before Israel gets whooped. Isaiah 39 says, The time when everything in your palace will be carried off. Hosea, another prophet, chapter 9 says, The time of Israel's punishment has come. The day of payment is here. Soon Israel will know this all too well. Yet another, pro- uh, another prophet, Amos chapter 4, the sovereign Lord has sworn this by His holiness. The time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like a fish on a hook. Another prophet, Zechariah chapter 14, says, Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you. I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. The city will be taken. The houses looted. As Jesus sat on the back of that donkey, He said, indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will approach. The promise of conquest and full-scale destruction represents a collage of Old Testament texts. And I think the people around Jesus, watching his body shake while sobbing, hearing those words, thought back to some of those prophets and what they said. They would not have been able to ignore the similarities between Jesus' words and those Old Testament prophet words. There was a lot of doom and gloom. But, there was more. I wonder if any of them that day caught the connection between Jesus' heart And God's heart. God demonstrated that heart in the prophet Isaiah when God said, Listen to me, you stubborn people who are so far from doing right. For I am ready to set things right, not in the distant future, but right now. I am ready to save Jerusalem and show my glory to Israel. God said that. And now we see Jesus on the doorstep of Jerusalem ready to enter, willing and desiring to save the people just like God had been in the times of Isaiah. Jesus had spoken this desire before too. A few chapters earlier in Luke, Luke 13.34, He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. If you're a parent, 
or if you've ever babysat, or if you're a grandparent, you know that when a, a kid gets hurt, the first thing they want to do is run up to you. They want to crawl into your, app, your, your lap, and they want you to wrap your arms around them. They want the pain to be taken away by the loving arms of a guardian, of a parent, of an uncle, an aunt. Jesus wanted to do this. And on the hill overlooking Jerusalem, did the people that day hear that desire? Jesus wanted to gather those people, to gather the city together, but they had not been willing. And I wonder if when Jesus wept and wailed, that connection was made by those around him. You know, I think the people around him would have made one more connection with Jesus' words that we wouldn't typically norm, we wouldn't normally make. When we picture this scene, we picture a very prophetic statement. Right? We see Jesus weeping over a lot of people, people who were going to be lost. History tells us that about 40 years after Jesus said these things, the Romans came in, they attacked, they sacked, they looted Jerusalem. And about 600,000 Jews died. Many of us, this is the current insight, many of us look on Jesus' words and think only of that time. Think, ah, he was thinking of when Rome came in. But I think the people listening to Jesus that day heard something different. See, for the Jews, for the Israelites around Jesus that day, the word Jerusalem meant more than just a city, more than just a people. The word Jerusalem meant a system, its role as a cultural center, primarily the temple system, the leadership that draws its legitimacy from the temple. I'm guessing that those listening to Jesus that day made the connection between Jesus' words and the temple system that had been going on for so long. And I think Jesus grieved the way that for so many people, the temple system left them feeling tied, bound, maybe even enslaved. Throughout the Gospels, who did Jesus butt heads the most with? The religious leaders, right? So for Jesus to cry out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! I've got to think those listening made the connection between the temple system and what Jesus was saying. Jesus wanted to live out His mission statement. He wanted to set people free, even if that meant setting them free from the way they did church. He wanted to give them peace. And He knew that only He could bring that peace. Luke 13.35, Jesus says, And now look, your house is abandoned, and you will never see me again until the day you say blessings on he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' heart was broken for a system of religion that needed him, that he knew he could offer them freedom. I think the people that were listening that day would have thought of that. As Jesus crested that hill, riding the donkey, becoming visibly moved by the sight of Jerusalem. So what did the people hear? What did they hear when Jesus spoke these words? I think they heard Jesus' desire to change a system. I think they heard the echoes of the Old Testament prophets who longed to see people made right with God. I think those surrounding Jesus saw a man whose heart grieved in the same way God's heart grieved over people. 
My question to us today is, do we hear those things when we read a passage like this? Or do we simply see this solitary Jesus sitting on a hill with that single tear coming down? You know, a little bit bummed that he's going to get sacrificed. Do we get an air of arrogance where we say, you know what, it serves them right that 40 years later they should get demolished. Because they had Jesus in their midst and they missed him. They didn't just miss him, they killed him. Is that what we think when we read a passage like this? Do we hear any of Jesus' agony over a broken church today? Do we hear Jesus' cries for freedom? What do we hear? What is Jesus crying for today? We've been talking about celebrating Freedom Sunday today, and I think it's fitting that we look at Jesus' tears, because I still think Christ cries over us. I think He cries over those that are enslaved, literally and spiritually and emotionally. I think His mission statement still is to set people free. And I think it's time for us to share Christ's tears and to begin making some changes be bold enough to say, I think there are things in First Church that Christ cries over. I think there are things in each of our individual lives that Christ cries over. And I could stand up here and I could tell you this is what I think it is and this is the practical statement I think you should make as we move forward from here. But I'm not going to do that this morning. We're going to go slightly uncomfortable this morning. You guys ready? Slightly uncomfortable. Uh-oh, Jerry's leaving. It wasn't going to be that uncomfortable, Jerry. <laughs> Instead of me telling you what to do with this, I'm going to ask that you guys gather with those around you, whether it's family or friends. If you know, Frankly, some from this side could come over to this side. Get into smaller groups. And I want to wrestle with two questions in those groups. When Christ looks at First Free Methodist Church, what is he crying for? And when he looks at your life specifically, what does he weep for? This is uncomfortable because we've got to be a little bit vulnerable. It's uncomfortable also because we don't normally talk in church, and I'm asking you to do that. Next question is, what is one practical thing you can do this week to ease Jesus' tears for you or for this church? little life application here, thought up by you guys. Okay? So I'll tell the instructions again really clearly. We're going to gather into smaller groups, go groups of three or more, three, five, seven, get with somebody you know, get with somebody you don't know. We're going to spend about 10 minutes talking about these two questions. Give everybody in your group an opportunity to share. If you finish in less than 10 minutes, spend some time praying with each other. And then we'll gather back together as a group, we'll wrap things up, we'll take communion together, and we'll worship a little bit more. Everything clear? Questions are up on the board? We're wrestling with what Christ cries over for First Church and in our own lives, in small groups. Ready? 